You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is... Paul Gillieri. Paul, uh, this has been a difficult week for, well, for anybody who gives a damn, honestly, but Mm -hmm. um, Americans, and specifically Hawaiians, and more specifically, the residents of Lahaina uh, in Maui, and... um, we always ask you each week to feed the algorithm, which of course is very important for us and for the PJ community, but um, that's peanuts compared to this. And I don't know if you've seen it guys, but we have posted on our social media um, across the board, basically a challenge to you. And that is uh, if you send us confirmation that you have donated at least $10 to the Hawaii community foundation, then we will send you all five of the available concert recordings in uh, or from Hawaii over the years. They think they've done like eight or nine, but those first three are from 92 and there's no discernible audio from those days. So we have, um, we have five others. So uh, we've already raised um, a good amount of money here. And uh, if you're interested, there is a link in our bio, literally everywhere. It'll be a link in this description of this episode. Uh, it's really rough out there. If you've seen any of the pictures, Paul, it it is rough. Uh, the death toll is creeping up towards a hundred. I think they they were officially at ninety nine, and the expectation is that that number will significantly rise. Um, I mean, by all accounts, I think it's the the deadliest um, blaze in in United States history when it comes to to just loss of life. So every little bit helps, obviously. And uh, you're absolutely right. When when you said that when we ask folks to feed the algorithm, it really is peanuts compared to the grand scheme here. And in this case, it's helping those in need. So I think uh, you know Pearl Jam has always committed themselves to wanting to be shepherds of of charity and uh, community service and activism. And if if you're a Pearl Jam fan, there's no better way to honor that spirit than to contribute here. Uh, we've had uh, a good number of folks already reach out and. We're very, very excited about uh, this this opportunity to collectively contribute uh, our little bit because uh, every every little bit does help. Yeah, and uh, I know that the band themselves are, I believe, auctioning off a, a fully band and boom signed uh, poster from I want to say it's one of the ninety eight shows out there in Honolulu. So if you haven't seen that, check out their social media. I'm sure it's everywhere. It might have been even been in an email. Um, so if you're a 10 Club member, Pearl Jam newsletter uh, subscriber, you'll have seen that. So very, very important. I know we're talking Pearl Jam here and the music and all that good stuff. And we've got a really silly episode. We're talking top five riffs from No Code and the evolution of In My Tree in the live setting. So, you know, we're not uh, we're not solving cancer or anything here on our silly little program. <laughs> But uh, there is a serious edge to this. So if you're listening, if you can donate um, some money, uh, 
Hawaii Community Foundation is one of many, but it's one that we picked out. It's in the link uh, in our bio everywhere. You can't miss it. Um, and if you say, listen, send us confirmation, we'll send you every Hawaiian show. Yeah. That simple. Tell your friends. Tell okay. your friends. Um, what else? Oh, that's it. Well, I'll skip the usual housekeeping. Let's just get right into it, man. Um, we haven't done a top riffs episode in, I want to say two years since we did uh, our whole month of 10 in 2021. It has been a while. It's one of those segments that I don't want to say got lost in the ether, but it definitely found itself on a back burner surrounded by a lot of other pots and pans. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, and listen, as we have both played the guitar to varying degrees over the years, we enjoy a good riff, Mm -hmm. um, a good bass riff, a good guitar riff. And, you know, it's something that when we did the 10, uh, top five two years ago i was like "Ooh, look at my chops there's so many good ones it's hard to narrow it down and this one was kind of no different to me i mean th- there is what 12 songs to choose from and i think pretty much every song for me had something going on it's just a matter of how do you put mm-hmm. it together how do you rank them obviously super super subjective if it's a it's a slow picking pattern if it's a chord based thing if it's a fast thing a slow thing whatever um it's up to you. So you might argue with us. Uh, of course, we won't respond because, you know, this already happened. <laughs> but uh, you might disagree with us online and tell us, no way, this thing's better than this thing. That's the part of the point, man. Keep the conversation going. And uh, But for now, let's go ahead and give you our top five riffs. Uh, Paul, do you want to lead us off with your with your fifth favorite from the, the sure. record of 1996? Yeah. I think the bass riff in in my tree is uh, is it, it's definitely a grounding and anchoring mm. part of that composition. I think everyone associates that song with Jack's drumming, and we we do get these eclectic Eastern Eastern influences on this record, of, of, of far more so than we had on prior records. But the guitar dominant sounds of the previous three records kind of gives way to this noisy garage rock sound in the guitars here and one of the byproducts of that is we really get to see what happens when the drums and the bass are showcased in a composition and i think that at least initially with a song like in my tree it was a stark contrast and uh, what i would say is a somewhat of a dramatic departure from Pearl Jam as the band we knew them at the time. Mm-hmm. And so this this particular bass riff, it, it's very groovy. Um, it kind of has that like wind in your face feel, like the, 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 the mm. thumping of, um, you know, little bumps on the highway as you go. I like that. Um, yeah. It's just, it just, it really, it, it has a very, very nice ambling sound to it. Um, and so it, it, it's interesting to to think of the imagery of this song of, of Eddie in a tree with the sea breeze and, you know, cliffside and all that kind of stuff. But it has to be uh, sea breeze. Right. Exactly. There's no way this is in the middle of uh, no offense. Like Indiana No, it's not Joshua like Tree or Indiana or anything like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, although I'm sure there's a lovely breeze blowing somewhere in Gary right around now. But <laughs> Probably. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think what's interesting about the riff is that you listen to a song like Jeremy, which has a really heavy bass sound to it. And, yeah. uh, you know, we get, we get why go and some other tracks. So why goes a great example from 10 of, of kind of how you get the drums and the bass and how that leads off a song. And it really, really 
guides the rest of the composition. I think we get that actually with In My Tree. It really kind of creates the bedrock is a word you love to use. Um, in this case, uh, I, mean, I would use the, the the pavement. I think it provides the mm-hmm. pavement for for this this particular song. Um, and honestly, it's one of those songs where you could take Jeff's bass riff and just play that in isolation, and you can't you can't mm. help but like go bob your head. You know, um, it, well, it, I, I, it's it's solid. We we will talk about that and many other parts of this wonderful song later on in our evolution. Um, it's funny that you say the bass riff from In My Tree. I had here at number five, the verse guitar from In My Tree. Um, so something that's on a parallel track that works together with what you just said. Uh, I think similar to the Hail Hail riff, um, where the chords themselves create a melody that really moves the song forward, really propels it, in my opinion, as much as Jack strumming for me. I think they're complementary parts. And what I really like about this chord progression is it's basically one hand position on the guitar. You're just kind of slightly changing which fingers are on which strings, but you never move from that spot on the guitar. It's it's a very comfortable progression to play. And therefore each chord's voicing feels kind of connected to the one before and after it. There's like a, there's like a coziness to it because of that. I think it's very, very interesting. Anybody who is a guitar player that's ever tried playing this before, you'll know. You're, you're kind of just leaving your hand in one spot. And just it's very subtle changes, but all those subtle changes move chord to chord to chord. But like there's a, there's a I don't want to say symmetry. There's a through line that isn't um, as obvious in just your generic cowboy chord, you know, D-A-G or A-G-D-A, whatever. It might be. So I love how this thing moves and feels like one organism um, as it goes chord to chord. And I, I listen, I said it's complimentary with Jack strumming, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say it, it, it pairs obviously very well with what you said about Jeff. Yeah, that's an excellent choice. And I think that's a, it's a standout moment in the track, you know, so yeah. good call there. All right. We're on to number four. Four for me. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go for this one uh, i'm gonna do eddie's eddie's guitar work on uh who you are that that eastern Ooh. influenced riff that kind of follow it, again this is this is it's like the opposite of what we just got within my tree right we get this this wonderful ambling bass riff over the top of these the, these eclectic drums this to me has more of that eastern feel to it and uh you know i was reading up on on the background of this recording not too long ago and i didn't know this but uh apparently jack had heard this polyrhythmic drum pattern inspired by a Max Roach drum solo that that Jack heard at a drum shop when he was only eight years old. And it stuck with him all that time. And so he basically tried to kind of use that as an inspiration for this this wonderful kind of Eastern-influenced percussion pattern. And I think that Eddie's guitar, which mimics what will be the lyrical delivery of the song, kind of has that that feeling to it as well you can't help but think of some of the work that the beatles did on on a record like revolver oh yeah yeah, yeah. um and <clears throat> this was the song for me first of all it was the single right it's the lead single it was mm-hmm. conscious effort on the band to to reduce their audience which just seems <laughs> is what like, a strange what, idea <laughs> like what band on the planet you know what i mean it's just like we want less people to listen to us now 
it's uh especially when they were as big as they were but i guess that that in large part is why they wanted that you know we, we've mined that territory quite a bit on this show but uh, what i love about this guitar is that it was the first time i heard a pearl jam riff ever in the catalog um that wasn't like you know a gimmick or a joke or something that they were doing just to have fun on the side where this was a very purposeful um intention to experiment and eddie said that you know he said that about jack strumming on this song that it we realized that we had an opportunity to experiment we didn't see as much of that yes we do get some experimentation on vitology but it's of a different variety i would say this to me was a a conscious effort to stylistically completely overhaul who they are as a band the experimentations on Vitalogy were separate from they the were, quote they, they songs saw, where yeah, on this but, record, it was much more of a, of a, uh, an organism unto itself. Yes, exactly. I mean, some of those experimentations on Vitalogy were, were production oriented. Some of them were mm -hmm. lyrically, um, avant-garde or silly in some cases. Um, you know, you look at songs like uh, stupid mop or, or even bugs. I mean, that, that was, those yeah. were kind of, you know, big middle fingers, I think to the record companies at the uh -huh. time. Uh, uh, you know, this was not, that's not what this was. This was, Hey, you know, we feel, we feel something, you know, we feel, um, amused and it's, it's calling us in these interesting directions and we're going to kind of pursue this. And I remember hearing this saying, this, this is not the band I knew anymore. Like I, what is this music? You know? And I liked it actually. When I heard, first heard who you are, I was like, I was digging it. You know what I mean? Um, so I was on board actually with the direction. And for me, it was interesting because that and in my tree were kind of like the, and maybe Red Mosquito were like the only three songs that really kind of pursued that avenue. Um, and then the rest of the record just kind of went in this like garage rock direction, which I wasn't a huge fan of at the time. But as much as I have called Vitology Pearl Jam's uh, White Album, I think in many ways, uh, I would say No Code is is in some way, you know, in many ways, is, is their revolver, you know? Um, so I think that this this very, very kind of cool guitar riff with it's 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 sparse right it's just a few notes i know, mean dun, dun, it's dun. real simple when, when you watch yeah. it live stone plays it and uh, which is not unlike super blood wolfman for example i could on any riff that stone plays so that Eddie can just sing but it's just you watch him play it and it's really just one finger third fret fifth fret on the b string super super simple um uh, i think sixth fret as well and yeah just going along with the melody line and it's not like anything we ever ever heard before so yeah i, I love i love that riff and i think it's a, a great shout um number four for me i'm gonna go with the main riff in sometimes oh i you know what that's an excellent excellent choice it's when I first heard this song, man, I was like, what is this? Like nothing I'd heard in the catalog. It's 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 probably only as clean as the album version of Stone's guitar, Nothing Man, because <laughs> it isn't like the live version. Um but in a in a the tone of the guitar is different. It feels like there's a little bit more space around the notes. Um and the line is just so simple and snake-like. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a drone riff, but feels like more of the backbone than any other instrument. Yeah, there's bass. Yeah, there's 
uh, a little bit of drum, but it feels like that is the bedrock. If I can borrow the term that you said that I use a lot um, (laughs) (laughs) about this riff. Um, It's almost like the bass and drums are sort of inverted to be the melody in a sense. I think it's a really creative and unique uh, riff, especially in its simplicity. Do, 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 do. I mean, it's just, it's like four different notes. But for some reason, the order that they're in, the guitar tone, the the vibe surrounding the rest of the song, I just love it. I just love it. I, I think it's a fantastic choice. A, a very unique opener to a Pearl Jam record. We had not yet heard something that quiet um, so it, I think, you know, that was the signal. If you had not heard who you are and you just went out and bought this album, put it on blind, you, when you heard that opening, you were just like, okay, I'm in for something very different this time. So. Especially when you put headphones on. Yeah. You crank with some headphones on that thing's like, whoa, it's like, it's like a, a worm slithering through your nose into your brain <laughs> in the best possible way. Of course. You'll never listen to the song again. Good listener. <laughs> the same way. Uh, we're on to our third favorite. What do you got here? I'm gonna go the um, the rhythm riff of smile. Oh yeah. Uh, I I just think it crunches. I think it's it's got this cool kind of like hop hoppy Neil Young groove to it. Absolutely. Um, for yes. whatever reason, you know, this particular song I think was was the last one to be performed live in 1996 when they toured to support this album. Um. Actually, that's not true. I think I'm open was that didn't show up until 2006. But by and large, you know, you know, more I'm quote open. unquote regular songs. Correct. Yeah. There correct. Um, and it, I, I think it's been played less than you know 100 times. I believe I'd have to go back to the stats just to to check it out. But I mean, it, it, it's a grittier song, um, but it's not messy and noisy like Habit. I think right. it it has a nice clean sound to it. And uh, what I find most fascinating is that uh, it's one of those interesting songs where Jeff and Stone actually switch instruments right? <laughs> when, when they play this song live, which uh, I don't know why they do that, but for whatever reason they, they do. Well, didn't uh, Jeff write the music? Jeff wrote the music. He, he brought kind of like the kernel for this song to the no code sessions. Um, and then Eddie, in uh, he added the lyrics inspired by that that Dennis Flemian note. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, Dennis Flemian, a uh, member of the band The Frogs, had left a, a note tucked inside of one of Eddie's notebooks while they were on tour. And the, the refrain, I miss you already, I miss you always, was a, a very poignant part of that. So I think w- what's interesting, though, about this particular riff was that Jeff brings it into the recording sessions. And... Um, you know, the band basically gravitates towards this and then they just went with it, you know, and it just kind of evolved and Eddie through, you know, we get the harmonica over the top of it. And it, it, it is a very Neil Young esque song, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's funny when you, you know, you, you could easily take this song and stick it on Merkinball if you wanted to. And it I was just going to say, <laughs> I wonder if this is just a holdover riff that Jeff had been messing around with during the, the Merkinball Mirrorball sessions like it he was inspired been. by neil and like this just kind of popped out because it totally is a neil yeah. style riff just it dirty much was. yeah uh uh jaunty if you will mm-hmm. yeah uh yeah um, i like that that's a good pick but you know with with jack's drumming on top of it, it, it it's one of those uh clean drum beats you know with 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 nothing too complicated in terms of timing 
Um, I don't know. I, I just think that it's 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 a unique riff that I don't think is like anything else on the album. And yeah. and I, I say that in the sense that it's arguably the most accessible riff. Among, oh, yeah, simple among, four chord progression. Yeah, right. You know what I mean. But but I think in because of what it is surrounded by, it was uh, elevated in that respect. So mm. I think it, it's it's just a cool riff. Uh, it's yeah, it's yeah. a song. I'm surprised we don't hear more often. To be honest with you, I mean it's it's simple enough. You think that and, and people really do love this song. Um, and it, again, it's not intricate. It's very simple, very straightforward. There's minimal lyrics. Um, I, I think that's it, why we don't hear it very often. Is it just maybe it, I don't want to say it bores them. Maybe it's just like, ah, eh, I, I just there think are other Ed, songs. Yeah. I think Eddie probably looks at it as kind of like a little, um, a little nod, you know, a little sonnet, so to speak, not even that, but more of like a haiku. <laughs> it's not an actual haiku, obviously, but, uh, just kind of like, oh, a buddy of mine, you know, left something in my notebook and I just kind of weaved a song around it. And, you know, Jeff brought this kernel of a, a song and, it, you know, here's our little homage to Neil Young and here you go. But it's not the kind of song that they think people want to hear, but I, I, I mean, think they'd it, be surprised. It also it could be that, uh, it reminds them of a time that wasn't too fun. Maybe it reminds him of of Dennis who died. Uh, yeah, that's possible too. Well, um, my third choice is going to be the bridge riff uh, from "Off He Goes." Oh, fascinating! So, talk about a jaunty riff. This one is is jaunty. It's another another single note kind of thingy. Um, it feels very back and forth to me like you can feel the subject sort of walking briskly away from what he thinks are his problems and i think jeff's bass is it it really beautifully augments the guitars as well here and this riff actually does come back in the outro with some very subtle but lovely fills from mike that almost sound like i maybe i'm getting to a little too bob rossi here but Sounds like a little a little butterfly just just weaving in and around the subject of the song as he presses on, you know. Uh, <laughs> this section is really one of the more illustrative um, guitar riffs and, and and sections to me on this record, if not the catalog. Um, just wow. the way the way that these it's double double recorded. It's left ear, right ear. It's the same pattern, but because. Um, you know, it's doubled and not just, you know, copy and pasted. You get that stereo effect, right? It's not like Jeff and Stone uh, and, and Ed are playing complementary pieces, which Rick no. Beato has pointed out many times is one of the hallmarks of Pearl Jam is playing pieces that that fit together as one thing, just played separately. This is, in, in, a, in the moment, they're both playing the same thing. But because of the way the acoustic guitars are recorded, the reverb, the hall room effect, whatever you want to call it, it just feels like we're moving, we're being propelled. Um, and I can feel myself, uh, you know, near the campfire where Ed's character once was. Uh, so I just I just love this. I've always loved this part of the song. And um, yeah, there you go. Off he goes bridge. Outstanding. All right. We're at the top two. This is the heat of the meat here. What do you got? This is a riff that I don't think is nearly as appreciated enough. And it is the intro to Lucan. Um, Okay. I think that this is, first of all, it is a, a, just a killer rock riff. Um, And when you hear it slowed down, 
you get to hear what these chords sound like in concert mm. with each other in a way that I think accentuates their um, complementary and their rhythmic relationship, uh, which is just kind of a, a, a long-winded way of saying it sounds really good. <laughs> uh, you know, it, the, these particular chords... Um, <clears throat> are all perfectly situated, but he plays them so fast and frenetic and it's designed that way on the album to just, but it's not like habit garage rock. I mean, this, this is a, just like a punk rock, just, you know, punching it in the mouth. The song is let, what is like less than a minute, I think. Um, something seconds. Yeah. It's something like that, but it's E five, D five, E five, C five. And just do that four times, but even slow down. uh, You appreciate the melody. And the melancholy, there's a melancholy um, sound to these chords when played together. And I think that when you listen to the slowed down version, you really get a sense of that. You know what I mean? There's a sadness to, obviously, the lyrical content certainly reinforces that. But <laughs> musically speaking, it's, it, it's played so quickly um, that it doesn't, you, it loses that. And I think that it's beautiful because when you listen to the album version, it captures, it's it's emblematic of the anger and the rage and the frustration that comes with being in that situation that Eddie was in at the time. But so many years later, at the place he was in his life when it was, when it was slowed down uh, and played live, um, you you start to see like that there's a, a wisdom behind it. There's kind of like a you know he reflects back. There's reflection. There is like I said melancholy. Like looking back and saying, wow, that was a really sad part of my life. But it was even perhaps more sad for the person who was stalking me. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like what what a tragic waste of life. You know what I mean? Um, life is precious. It's a gift, and and that's how this individual was choosing to live it. Uh, and so you really get that, that, that sadness that comes out of it. Um, and so I think I, I developed a, uh, first of all, I adore the slow down version, oh, yeah. uh, but it was just beautiful. But I also think that I, I listen to the uptempo version now very differently because of that. Um, but it, it, when you get a chance, see if you can listen to that song and just slow it down somehow, um, on your computer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right? Um, slow it down a little bit. And let like like let that riff just kind of burn in a little bit, and mm-hmm. it, you'll 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 hear it in a very 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 you'll you hear a different song, man. You really will. A couple things I want I want to say about this riff. So number one, uh, slow Lucan, if you didn't know, only happened once, May twenty first, twenty ten, at the Garden in New York City. Uh, it's gorgeous, and we never heard it again. Maybe maybe a tease on the last tour, but not not like a full full performance um the chords not exactly the same order but the same chords uh from black Hmm. there you go d c e d e d c to some degree you said e5 d5 for those of you you don't know that just means power chord so another thing about this riff is and and josh evans talked to us about this Ed's right hand. Ed's right hand is so forceful. The way that he picks that riff, 
you feel it. You feel it's only, I think, two notes. I think it's like a, just a two note power chord, but you feel everything he's putting into that Telecaster mm-hmm. or whatever the hell he's playing. I love that. And I love the, I love those chords together and you bring it all together. And I completely understand why it uh, on the surface, it sounds kind of silly. Oh, just like a little power chord punk riff. Why, how, There's why beauty and simplicity here. Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I literally just watched a um a video on YouTube about uh the genius of Chad Smith. Oh. This cool YouTube channel called Drumio, I think it's called. And uh Chad's like, dude, I play like literally the same beat in every song. And if you go back and listen, it's like, holy shit, it's kind of the same beat with like little fluctuations, but it's kind of the same thing over. He's like, dude, I'm all about simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. And they, they this is yes. There is beauty and simplicity. Obviously, Chad gets it. Ed gets it. And this is a great example of it. Um, so I laughed when you first said it because I was like, I was thinking in my superficial brain, like, oh, it's a fun little punk song. But as you explain it, like, you layers. Layers, my friend. This is a tiramisu. <laughs> now I'm hungry. I was thinking, a, you know, five layer dip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. The Super Bowl is only eight months away uh, or five months, whatever the hell it is. Anyways. All right, so my second choice, the outro from Red Mosquito. Oh, outstanding. Another single note picked line. I mentioned that earlier. This one feels like we're descending into some sort of regrettable madness. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You you got those lyrics there, right? You got, uh, if I had known then what I know now. It only emboldens the feelings that I feel when... Because the music comes in first and waits, I think it's two or three, two or four bars before Ed comes in. And you already start to feel like you're being whisked down the stairway to hell. <laughs> if I can borrow uh, the reverse of a Zeppelin. Uh, it feels like a sea shanty. I see, I, it feels like a sea shanty. That's hard to say. Uh, <laughs> it's got that swing to this riff. Almost like, almost like the boat is rocking back and forth. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't call the playing sloppy. It's just really loose. And I believe all the notes are eighth notes, but it's the, it's like they slide on either side of where they're supposed to sit within the measure. If that makes any sense, like if you sometimes when you talk about um, certain drummers, they play a beat and they're kind of at the back part of each part of the measure. So I don't, I don't know if you call okay. it early, you call it late. Some drummers out there was are probably yelling through the headphones like yeah. what that actually is called. <laughs> but like there's like there's like a lateness to like they're barely in time, they're barely getting to where they should be, and it feels like the notes here played by uh, Stone, at least live, uh, are just like they're just they're surrounding where they're supposed to be. They're not always exactly in time. This isn't a computer; it's a human, and you get the feeling of that, and I love that. Um, it's almost like the time signature is a suggestion. <laughs> oh, well said. And I, I, I love it. It's just really, really cool. And another very illustrative riff from this record. So for me, uh, outro Red Mosquito. I love it. That's an outstanding choice, my friend. All right. So again, we're at the point where I think there's a good chance we have the same number one pick. But the last few times I've said that, I've been dead wrong. So what is your number one choice? Oh, I, I have to go with uh, present tense. You son of a to. bitch. Me too. Right, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it, 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 first of all, it's it's it to me. It encapsulates what the entire record is about. You know, Mike's 
Mike's guitar work here is, I mean, this song, I think very much is the album distilled into a single track. Uh, and I think the guitar work is the same thing. It, it's, it's isolated. It's haunting. It's contemplative. Um, but at the same time, there is kind of a uh, transcendent feel to it. And I think when you think about this record, you know, of no code, that's very much what the record is doing. That's it. That, that's what it's saying. And, um, I love the, the tone of the riff. I love the way it was recorded. Um, when I think of the concept of a pre- of the present tense being in the moment, mm-hmm. you know, this, this riff has an ability to kind of hush everything around you. And it just kind of pulls you in into that moment. And you just kind of, uh, you know, you mentioned the word drone earlier. It's the antithesis of that. You know what I mean? It just seems to quiet the surrounding environment in a way that allows you to just be with the band or, or in that moment. So it's the noise canceling riff. Yeah. In a lot of ways it is. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's what, what I, and, and maybe it's, it's, um, you know, like, uh, a byproduct of, of, you know, association with the song title, you know what I mean? But it's, it, it feels to me like if, if you asked me, what does a present tense sound like? What does that verb um, tense sound like the present tense? I cannot help but think about this riff for obvious reasons. Cause that's the title of the song. But uh, when you think a little bit deeper about it, it does ground you, you know what I mean? There is, there is an anchoring quality to it that just kind of allows you to, to exist in a bubble and everything else is just canceled out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, just, it's an outstanding, outstanding riff. And obviously the way that it builds later is, is yeah. pretty special. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's funny, it's so clean on the record, but a lot of times you'll hear it played live and there's a distortion to it. Um, and it doesn't lose that effect. And I think that is pretty profound. That is, that is profound because we talked about, I mentioned it earlier, we, we certain riffs, are sometimes played um clean instead of dirty or dirty instead of clean like nothing man um yeah, which i don't like nothing man no i don't like it like that. i prefer i wish it was a clean electric guitar i, I don't want to hear an acoustic i don't want to hear a resonator i don't want to hear a, a dirty electric guitar i want to hear a clean guitar um sometimes it's fine uh when they change it up sometimes we hear riffs played uh different from the album because of the circumstance it's just not possible for mike to quickly you know kick on the distortion and get rid of the tremolo in one fell swoop you know he doesn't he doesn't have his roadie doing all the buttons like some guitarists do and that's because that's how they roll they roll pretty much um do it themselves as far as the effects go um yeah, for me, it's it's number one. Like I said, it's uh, it's a riff where, you know, when a riff is what the song is based around, and and that song is epic and awesome, you're gonna have a great riff. That's just simple math, I think. And the opening slash verse riff here from from present tense it is simple, but it says as much in the missing notes as it does in the notes that Mike plays. And, and, and Josh Evans spoke to us about comes then goes, um, in this same exact way. Um, and this is what he's talking about. You know, I, I once said maybe even, uh, in the same chat that an art teacher once said to me, 
to draw the space, not the shape. When we were tasked to draw a bowl of fruit, and it, mm. when he told us that, I was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Because seventeen-year-old me was not here for mm. mind-blowing, you know, philosophical <laughs> commands. <laughs> How but dare you make me think? I, <laughs> How dare you make me think my own thoughts? Uh, <laughs> you know, M- Mike is writing this song's entire energy, both by the notes that he's playing. And the ones that he's not, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and, like I said, his, his use of the tremolo pedal, it, it vibes the guitar sound in and out, creating a three-dimensional atmosphere that's just perfectly ripe for Ed to sing over. And like you said, everything after this riff is built upon it. We can't get to the chorus the way that we do without this riff. We can't get to the outro with how the chorus gets us there, which is built upon the riff, built upon this riff. So it's, it's a building block song. And when you do that, you have to have a great ground floor, a great bass riff. This is the best. Mm-hmm. Completely agree with you. Yeah. It was the only song. I know. I guess we both had in my tree at the top, but different riffs, different riffs. Yeah. Um, but that was yeah, the only crossover. Uh-huh. I wonder what you all out there think. Um, I will say that, uh, the the main riff from Hail Hail barely missed out. I I love that. Yeah, I'm surprised so neither one of us actually had that that one in there. Yeah, it's um, I mean, again, talk about you know positioning your how your hand performs the the voicings of the chords up and down the neck. It's just very unique. It's different ways to hear those chords, and it's like all those chords are the melody. Um, in a similar way to to in my tree, but I thought my tree was just a little bit more, had a little more going on, so I barely missed out. Anything else kind of speak to you, but didn't quite make the cut? Um, you know, all around the band has some mm. some, some some lovely balladry, uh, <laughs> but but I can't say those riffs necessarily would qualify as like top five on the record. Yeah, I hear um, you. Although you. this exercise did give me a great idea for a what if, which oh. we'll, we'll we'll talk about. Okay, write it down. Make sure we don't forget that. Mm. Um, all right, guys, let us know what you think. What are the top five riffs from No Code? Get in those comments. Let us know, and we'll debate. Uh, while you do that, while you pause and then resume, we're going to move on to the evolution of In My Tree. Another segment we haven't done in a long time. There's only so many songs that have truly evolved. Um, over time, Paul, I'm, I'm going to give a kind of a, a brief synopsis of what I kind of heard, how this song has changed, and then we'll kind of talk about what we liked about that, what we didn't like, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so let's, that's a good primer for the, okay. the listener. Yeah. Um, now we so are talking uh, specifically about live performances. Live those, performances. Yeah. Yes. Yes. This is not. This is not an evolution of how like demo we, to, <clears throat> or, or even like, how one has, has interpreted the song. Right, over right. the years. That's another evolution, but we're talking strictly musically performed uh, in the live setting. So obviously 96, early 98, Jack is there. The song is performed as you would hear on the record. You got your, your stock um, bass floor right there. Obviously Matt comes in summer of 98. It, t- to me, it sounds like he's trying to do um, Jack justice and, and, and play that riff the way that he can play it. And that's fine. I think it was around 2000, Matt starts to play Jack's riff a a little more simply, a little bit more Matt, less complicated. Fast forward to 03, 
Ed starts to sing. I'm sorry. Ed starts the song with the guitar. Matt enters slowly with just a kick drum. You have an even more simplified main drum pattern that kind of emerges. And it never really reaches the complexity that we heard from the original drum pattern. So we're kind of really kind of shifting away here. By the end of that Riot Act tour, all the way through 2006, Boom Gaspar takes over the bridge. No more is Eddie and Jeff singing about Eddie and his Blue Sky Home. It's just a, a, a an organ solo. Very, very, very different. Then from 09 to, to 2010, basically that Backspacer tour, you kind of we kind of go in reverse a little bit. Matt and Jeff start playing, start the song together. Uh, usually it's just drums. Now it's drums and bass starting the song. Matt plays the drums a little bit more true to the original pattern. Ed's vocals return to, to the bridge, replacing Boom's organ. So we're getting closer to the original performance. Then 2011 through 2016, um, very similar to the previous era, except Jeff does not start with Matt. He kind of backs off a few bars. Uh, again, even closer to the original performance. Matt slowly makes the drum pattern more Matt again. So we're kind of like a roller coaster here with Matt's um, style of drumming here. And then 2018 through uh, the last tour, Matt still opens the song, but he makes the drum pattern even simpler, really relying on the kick drum to move the song um, rather than using a lot of the tom work that that uh, Jack did on the record and the earliest tours that it was played on. So with that timeline in mind, and it's easy to be like, ah, the original, that's, 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 what, that's what it should be. Paul, do you prefer a like for like when it comes to, I guess we're kind of zooming out, you know, when it comes to live performances of studio tracks, do you like when the band kind of does the song justice or do you like when they kind of take a little bit of a detour? Well, I don't want to, you know, paint all these exercises uh, with, with one wide brushstroke here. I, I think in some, in some cases, the experimentation works, works really well. I, you know, in some cases, I kind of wish they would be a little bit more true to form to the original composition. I'm going to quote Jack here because I think this, this will help frame the exercise, at least for this particular song. Um, he once said, to turn my drum music into a song is pretty challenging, but the guys have been really supportive of me doing it, and we've worked some things and do a few songs. Uh, <laughs> he's right, you know? Yeah. To to turn his drum music into a song is challenging. And I think that, you know, if it's Jack, it's Jack. But if it's not Jack, it's a challenging endeavor to ask another drummer to come in and recreate that sound. And if you don't recreate that sound and you drum it differently, well, then the kind of the song basically has to change with it. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I don't think these guys have really landed on what they want this to be. Uh, I think they appreciate its place in the catalog and the fact that the fans love it. So there's no desire to stop playing it per se, but I think they're still kind of trying to find what the song wants to be with Matt at the helm. Yeah. And uh, I, I think what's challenging is that it's not the kind of song that we would get from Matt Cameron. You know what I mean? It just, it, oh, it's, it's no. yeah. such a Jack song that it's, it's, it's almost like a, I don't want to say forcing a square peg into a circle hole, but I mean, every time they, they try and do it now, it just feels like they're, they're just trying to 
speak it. It's like they're trying to translate it into a different language. Every I was just going to say that. Translate, yeah, they're, yeah. they're trying to translate it into a different language every time. And, and sometimes it sounds beautiful. And, and sometimes it, I don't want to say butcher that that's too strong of a word, but sometimes it feels a little clunky, um, a little off, you know, and, and to that effect, one could very easily argue that the way it was said in its original native tongue was the, 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 <laughs> the best version available. And, uh, but you know what, Jack is not the drummer, you know, Matt Cameron is. And, um, I, I would, I, first of all, I think they're doing the right thing by trying to reimagine the song. I was and, just going to ask you, you have to, man, hey, you, there's, you, because there's so many different versions of this. Um, does it, should they keep trying to find a new way or yes, I mean, because it's, it's unless Matt can actually, recreate that exact same sound and i don't know how comfortable he is doing that maybe um, doesn't i don't want to. i don't yeah and it could be that simple it could be like look guys like I, I know this is your song but like that that that's not me you know that's not how yeah. i drum it's not my style and uh so i think that you know the the fidelity to the composition changes when you start playing it live because now you know the fidelity is is less to the composition as it was recorded in the studio, and it's more towards the performance of the song in front yeah. of a live audience. And so that necessitates evolution sometimes, at least in this case, most definitely it does. So, I, 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 no, I'm not saying they should stop trying or that they should stop playing it live because Jack's not the drummer anymore. That's, that's asinine. I think WMA, which is a, a, one of the songs we did cover in this segment in the past, it's a Dave song. That's a great example of you know, a song that has evolved over time in ways that I think are both surprising and and very pleasing. So that is where I think they need to, that's the space to me they need to occupy. You know what I mean? Uh, they completely ditched the drums as an opening to that song. Like that song was so percussion driven and they basically started picking up a, an acoustic guitar and playing a riff behind it and kind of reimagining. Similar fashion to reworking. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. Just yeah. rework it. So I think that's that's something I think that's worth trying. You know, like let's just and they have been they have been trying to rework it, but I think they need to maybe double down on that a little bit uh, and really, really rework this song. And, Here, and here's a question. So I I will say that the the thing I don't like the most is is the boom thing. In replacing the bridge, yeah, it just it just it feel it, it feels the most forced. Like I can I can understand um, starting with bass and drums. I can understand starting with just acoustic guitar because again we talked about those riffs. They're very percussive. They move the song as much as the drums do, even though the drums are you know the lifeblood of the song. I think you can get away with starting the song in a, in a different way. The 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 boom thing though, it kind of takes me out of it. In a similar way to how the elongated um, bridge of Corduroy has taken me out of the song. But that's, that's another evolution episode. I don't have a problem with them reworking this thing to make them feel good because it, it's got so much great going on. I, I'd still, I prefer to hear it than not hear it. I mean, listen, Ed has not saying, um, one of the choruses because you know the choruses differ from from chorus to chorus uh for years he hasn't sang the sky i scrape line i couldn't tell you last time he's, he's saying that it's the bows i break like every friggin' chorus i don't know why he forgets to sing the other or he doesn't want to i don't know what it is 
But so that's another part of it. Um, but here's the question to you is now that they have Josh Klinghoffer with them, how do they utilize him to maybe allow Matt to be the, the backbone of the song in his way? But maybe Josh can offer some of the, of the flair in a, in a way that's complimentary that isn't the same, but complimentary in a, in a new, new version of this song. Would that work, you think? Oh gosh! Um, I know we're speculating, but like it, he's yeah, there. I, I, he yeah, yeah, I mean, for, for sure. I think it'd be interesting to have like dueling drums for this song. I think that uh, I don't know. I mean, like, what if they just brought like kernels of this song and just like, I mean, maybe maybe they've already done this. I don't know, but I mean, like, what would happen if Matt was tasked with this chore? You know, if they said, "Hey, take whatever you want out of this song." Um, and go make a brand new song out of this. You know, these are going to be the lyrics, though, right? I mean, this that this is the, the the lyrics are the the access. That's the entry point for the fans. So we're not writing an entirely new song, but um, what what does this sound like? What 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 could these lyrics go to for you? Hmm. You know, like think, just give them the vocal track. <laughs> oh yeah, just give them the vocal track and That'd see. That'd be what interesting. Interesting uh, exercise. I, I'm curious, you guys out there, if um, well, hey, what do you think about the evolution of this song and its live performances? And would you welcome a completely new reworking that is Matt um, captained? And would you be interested to to hear and see something? where josh is complimenting matt on on the percussion i i think that'd be a uh, if they're gonna carry on with josh i think that's a great idea mm-hmm. give it a shot he's got i think he's got bongos up there right just do a little, yeah, a little something a little something new all right well while we all think about that we're gonna move on now to our lyric of the week Lyric of the Week this week is not exactly a Pearl Jam song. It comes from a fan club single, the 2009 fan club single. And that song is Hawaii 78. How would they feel where the smile be content rather than crying? For the gods, cry for the people, cry for the land that was taken away, and in it you'll find Hawaii. All right, Paul. So this is um, obviously very topical. Uh, pick this song, and listen. When we we have our our giant spreadsheet here of all the songs and who wrote them and which ones we've already covered you know you, you scroll past hawaii 78 turning miss santa cruz some of these songs you're just like ah, i guess we'll have to get to that at some point <laughs> and uh, unfortunately um it felt like this was the perfect time um this is the lyrics you just heard the singing you just heard is the chorus from hawaii 78 and let me give you like a, a brief, a brief kind of history of this thing. Um, because mm-hmm. I, listen, I didn't, I didn't know much about this song. Um, but you know, as legend has it, 
this song was written in part by four different people in 1976 and 77. So from a Pearl Jam perspective, uh, not unlike Last Kiss, it's a cover of a cover. Mm -hmm. But it was made famous by, as NPR would dub him, the voice of Hawaii, uh, Israel Kamakavi Vole. And I'll call him Brother Is from here on out because I'm going to yep. butcher that. And I apologize to everyone who has offended, who's been offended by that. Um, Is recorded this song in 1993. And the producer he worked with said they were up late in a house, the studio, uh, uh, on top of a mountain in Paliuha, which for those not familiar with the Hawaiian Islands is on Oahu, uh, Oahu which is the island that has Honolulu on it. Mm-hmm. And you could see the entirety of Honolulu from that mountaintop and the marine layer fog would, would roll in sometimes obscuring the view. So you'd think you were just kind of up there in the clouds or something. And they recorded this song maybe 30 times over the next few hours. I will tell you that I have never personally been to Hawaii, though I've wanted to. No, I've never been. Um, so and I know I've, I've been t- the big Island and uh, really? Maui and yeah. It's um, I always hear the best things and with everything that's happened over the last week, uh, I've really dived into some of the history of the islands and I'll admit, you know, I, I never really gave this performance, this song a chance, you know, when the fan club single came out 13, 14 years ago, and maybe, maybe it's my, uh, my white boy ears couldn't handle something like this. Uh, but I've been listening to this song. The brother is version as well as the um the few versions that Ed sings on right. um over the last week. And you know, you've you've got these bookend lyrics in the native Hawaiian language that roughly translate to the life or soul of the land is, is perpetuated in righteousness. I, I I know that the phrase doesn't perfectly translate to English, but from what I've read, this is the most common one. And, and apologies to anyone who could explain it better. But yeah, th- th- this song is written about the soul of the islands, the way mm-hmm. of life of the indigenous peoples was like so many other places around the world, including obviously the continental U.S., overtaken by modern society. And I'm sure there are many people who can think of more aggressive words than that, but I'm going to stick with that for now. And as I think about the chorus lyrics here, in the back of my mind, I, I-, I-, I juxtapose it with what we've seen over the last week. And, and the context is, is obviously very different in one way. The land isn't being taken away by modern society directly. It, it, it is the modern society's indirect repercussions, though. The, the, the exhaust of modern life, if I can coin a phrase. The, the hurricane winds, the heat, the dry landscape. We're seeing wildfires with higher frequency and intensity, among other natural disasters around the world, because of climate change. And that is very much to blame by most experts for the incredible speed at which Lahaina was decimated. Yes, the emergency alerts didn't happen. That is certainly a big problem, but the fires still would have destroyed what they did. Now, the last line there in this course is, and then yet you'll find Hawaii. Now, I've read the original lyric was, and then you'll say goodbye to Hawaii, but it was changed. That's kind of eerie considering the island's current status. But I like the lyric change because to me, it says, even though our land and our way of life have been altered and, and removed in a sense, 
the island and what it truly stands for can never be denied. There's a positivity here in the face of a harsh and dark circumstance that is is so appealing to me. And maybe that's something that others have grabbed onto. I'm not, I'm not sure. Right now, Maui and, and all of Hawaii is hurting, and, and we may end up seeing over, I hope not, but over a thousand deaths on, on top of the upwards of $6 billion worth of damage. But eventually, slowly, what makes Hawaii, I'm sorry, what makes Maui, Maui will return. And I, I think that this chorus and this song need to be sung really, really loudly right now, Paul. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, in many ways, it is a, a siren call, uh, yes. not just for help, but also uh, of, of um, uh, how do I say this, prideful recognition of, uh, to what you refer to as the, the soul of this place. Um, look, I, in no way, shape, or form, what I consider myself even the, this, the smallest authority <laughs> on, on anything Hawaii. Uh, I've been there, um, you know, there are a number of uh, climactic zones on the planet and you can experience, I think over 75% of them on the big Island, or at least you could. And, you know, you could see in the span of a day, a rainforest, a white sandy beach, uh, you know, a volcano. I mean, it's just like these things that, that, yeah, that elsewhere on the planet, you'd have to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to, to see over a span of days or weeks. You could see, uh, in, you know, six hours on Hawaii. Um, it really is a breathtaking anomaly, uh, when it comes to topography. And I think what, what's important here is, is to remember that, yes, the, the tragic loss of human life is important. And, and we do want to do all we can to try and, and provide aid. Uh, but there's, there's still something to be said, you know, for the fact that these are just not trees burning up. You know what I mean, this is just not, uh, you know, nameless woodlands on fire. Uh, you know, the, the fabric of, of the culture of the people um, is, is very much embedded in the land itself. Um, in many ways, they, they are mirrored reflections of each other. And, you know, I think it's important to remember with a place like this that um, through these, the, the ashes, you know, I mean, Native Americans would employ a slash and burn technique where they would intentionally burn forests in order to get uh, soil to be richer and uh, they, their crops would, would be richer in turn. But obviously that's not what's happening here. None of this is designed or controlled. Um so, you know, how, how do we think about this tragedy as it relates to the, the broader ramifications and, and the implications on culture, the implications on the, the socioeconomic status of, of the people who live there, um, and the, the progress and the, um, the tragedy, you know, wrapping your head around all this. And so when, when you think about lyrics like these, I, I think you make a salient point. This idea that, you know, it's not that Hawaii is lost. Uh, Hawaii will return. Um, but more than anything else, uh, I think the hardest part of this is seeing something so idyllic, so, so, so beautiful, uh, so, so arrestingly, you know, stunning as the picturesque landscapes that we would see 
in a place like Hawaii and to see those things engulfed in flames and to know how many years or even generations may have to pass before we can we can see the natural beauty of this place return. That's the part that I think is hard to swallow. And it's it's important to to consider the the impact uh that the choices that we all make may be contributing to that. You know, when we talk about greenhouse gases, when we talk mm-hmm. about, you know, uh just irresponsibility in, in the ways that fires sometimes get started, whether by nature or or human error. Um so I just I can't fathom looking at a situation like this and just shrugging and saying, well, <clears throat> it happens. You know, I think it's important to to look for look for a takeaway. You know, wh- wh- how can we grow? What can we learn from this? And how can we help? So this is a song that uh, hopefully will serve as kind of a, um, a redemption song of sorts. And it'll, you know, be a song that I, I imagine we, we may hear played live a little bit more often um in the future certainly a song that i think could could be circulating a lot more right now than it is so pl- play this tune share it with your friends and um uh, give a little yeah i i would not be surprised if on august 31st in st paul minnesota ed busts this thing out yeah only a couple of weeks away and uh this ain't this this uh this tragedy is not going anywhere you've seen the pictures it's um it's it's not Lahaina. It's something else. So um well we've got to talk about the, the live performances of this song from a Pearl Jam perspective. So we'll do that now with our live cut of the week. Hawaii 78, by my count, there's only three versions uh that Eddie Vetter sings on. Which uh which one are we gonna go with? Well, you know, just in, in our discussions over these, um, you know, there's the December 2nd one from 2006. I think that was uh, a solid version. We had the fan club single version from 2009. So when we think about those two performances, it's just, you kind of have to decide what are you looking for in these, right? Do, do you want a shorter version that, that, that has boom, you know? Um, mm-hmm. That's a nice touch, obviously. Uh, do Do you want all the verses and and maybe some some spe- some special guests? I mean, <laughs> that's, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, this this one's a little trickier because it's not like we have a a litany of options where there's some consistency with the the performances. Um, I think that the more I listen to the these two performances, it's really hard to kind of choose one but i i would venture to say that the communal effort of of eddie and friends is the one that kind of stands out the most mostly because uh i think being together and kind of cooperating and collaborating to to raise the bar and elevate is is what's needed right now and so i imagine that this is the kind of song that if it is played live could very well find its way into a situation where where you do have guests coming on the stage for it Let's go to Honolulu on July 2nd, 2009.
So yeah, like we spoke about, um, December 2nd, 06, and then seven days later, but that's not a soundboard quality cut, both in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And then uh, three years later, an Ed-only show at the Hawaii Theater in Honolulu. Um, yeah, I like this one. It's it's a little bit longer. It's I think it's got more of the actual, or maybe even all of them, actually, uh, verses and lyrics, yeah. whereas the other one's uh, a little cut down. And this, even though the 06 version has boom on it, this 2009 version has a cameo from a beloved Hawaiian multi-instrumentalist, multi-instrument, mm-hmm. instrumentalist. Wow. Jason can't talk. Um, named Tavana. That's who you hear singing on this. And I'm not sure if he's playing the organ or not for somebody else, but it's, it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect combination of voices um there's a little it's kind of like a rock and roll interlude sort of thing that builds towards the end that i think is a cool little um it's a nice ed touch on obviously a very mm-hmm. hawaiian centric song but it it comes back to the uh the beautiful um homage bookend uh that i'm not gonna even try and say in hawaiian <laughs> uh that ed sings um but yeah i think it's i think it's the the, the right choice so there you go. My voice is starting to fail me. It's hot in here. It's a hard topic to discuss, but there you go. Um, I'm going to remind you one more time that we've got um, a bit of a challenge to you. And that is if you can donate at least $10, preferably more, to the Hawaii Community Fund uh, link in our bio, we will send you all five available Hawaiian show bootlegs. Uh, for your listening pleasure and uh, the link is in the episode description it's in like i said the bio of everything we do so please go do that if you're out of the country and you can't access that link um, i had somebody from australia say they couldn't access the link um, send us confirmation of some other link and some other way of donating and we will honor that as well so that's all i've got i'm not going to bother with anything else paul No, uh, in lieu of feeding the algorithm, uh, feed the, the, the souls and the, uh, the need for aid, the wonderful people of Hawaii. There you go. We will see you next week. And until we do, you have been listening to The State of Love and Trust. Love and Trust.